0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth will come through the scriptures. Turn in the word of God this morning to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We do have some notes available that uh, we've actually we've had posted for some time, and we handed them out last week and the week before. Um, so if you don't have them, you won't need them for today, but if you don't have them, you'll want to come and get them. It's an entire packet that starts with the Harmony of the Gospels and runs through what we covered last week with the uh, Childhood of Jesus, the 12-year-old visit to the temple, and that. So everything that we wrapped up last week is available in uh, in these notes. Also, even if you do have the notes, you'll want to come and pick up a new harmony of the Gospels. Um, we've had an error in our old harmony of the Gospels handout for almost three years, and uh, just noticed yesterday. So we've uh, fixed that. And if you want, it's just four pages, two front and back, and you can pick these up and add those to the notes that you currently have. Part of, the, uh, part of the discrepancy, actually, in the uh, Harmony of the Gospels is deals precisely with this section that we're about to begin. We had wrapped up the um, portion that was titled Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, and we were ready to move on to a portion that was titled Truths about John the Baptist. And in the old Harmony outline... That section, titled Truths About John the Baptist, had 12 items associated with it, and uh, the first one of which was the baptism of Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about here today, the beginning of Jesus' ministry with his baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, in the corrected harmony of the Gospels, um, that is not actually the case, and I'll talk about that here a little bit as well. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, sanctifying our time and asking the Father to bring some kind of order to our confused thinking. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and we do thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love and grace. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us this morning as we study the living and abiding word of God, and we rejoice, Father, in knowing that your plan is perfect, your ways are perfect, uh, your your thoughts are not our thoughts, and as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts, and we thank you for that. We also rejoice, Father, because of our, of our uh, fallibility and the mistakes we make and the confusion we have, Father, from time to time, and knowing that the ministry of your word is not dependent upon the human beings involved and is not... Uh, impaired in any way. Father, it is your truth that goes forth and you are the teacher and we thank you for that. We rejoice, Father, in the perfection of your plan and that even though it uses imperfect people, it still accomplishes perfect results as you're the one who does the work and we just so celebrate and so rejoice and uh, praise your name for the glory of your truth and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so we are actually ready today to take a look at the baptism of Jesus Christ in uh, Matthew uh, 3 here. And in the Harmony of the Gospels, if you have a new one, that's fine. If you're still working off the old one, that's fine too. Um, You will notice that we place an approximate 30 AD date on his baptism not everyone agrees with that sort of timeline, and that's fine. We've discussed uh, timeline issues already in the introduction to our series, Um but you will notice, going across the chart, the location there being Jordan River, that's fine. But you'll notice Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels have Scripture that pertains to the baptism of Jesus Christ. It is one of the, uh, there aren't that many actual events. The feeding of the 5,000, for example, uh, the baptism, the, obviously the cross. There are uh, a handful of places that are covered by all four Gospels. We call the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those the synoptic gospels because they go together. They are roughly parallel with one another. They pretty much cover the same material. Uh, there's, there's very little, for instance, that's in Matthew that is unique to Matthew that's, that isn't found in Mark and Luke. There's very little, in fact, virtually nothing in Mark that's not found in Matthew and Luke. There's a couple of things um and there's very little in luke that's not covered in matthew and mark and so those three gospels are really they go together and they're often referred to as the synoptic gospels which means they go together all right but john is the fourth gospel and john The bulk of John is actually unique. Some 80% to 90% of John is unique. And uh, the Apostle John didn't even begin his writing until all the other apostles had died. And he was really the final author of the New Testament. And in really later years, uh, put down these items in his gospel. And that's why so much of John is, is reflective. So much of John you can tell, reflects decades of thinking and, and memories about what Christ was teaching and what it means and what it meant, and especially uh, in all the ways that they didn't understand at the time, but only later came to fully appreciate. So John is is really unique in uh, much of a subject matter, and so when you just can kind of glance down in the harmony chart and recognize that here with the baptism we have really the uh, uh, the first item that, is covered in all four of the Gospels. And then you can glance down and kind of get a snapshot. The feeding of the 5,000 is another one. And uh, it's really not hard to spot places where um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem to find where uh, an event in Jesus' life is actually covered by all four of the uh, of the Gospels. So far as the remainder of the, the mistake, as it were, and trying to repair our mistake, um what had happened in the previous handout where you had, there was no problem with the section we've already covered. We covered the introduction to Jesus Christ. There were three elements there. The birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. We covered 17 events there. And we really, we wrapped that up last week. The third section, the section titled "Truths is About John the Baptist, uh, that was, a, was an entire section that was not actually p- uh, printed in the original uh, or the harmony that we've been using for almost three years now. That whole section was omitted, and um, the heading was actually assigned improperly to the section which follows. Um, so there are four items in this section, truths about John the Baptist, and we're going to touch on them briefly here this hour. Uh, his ministry begins, It's just simply reading through the headings here, uh, the man and his message, his picture of Jesus, and his courage. And uh, much of that comes about through... Uh, Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 and John chapter 1 verses 19 through 28. And we're going to touch upon those as we lead into the baptism event itself. And so we're going to teach it really in passing on our way to the baptism event and uh, just move on to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the 12 items that we see listed there. So. I guess for the tape log, (laughs) I'll talk to Gina afterwards about what we're going to put down on the tape log. Uh, But this uh, section is simply truths about John the Baptist as well as beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then starting next week, we'll just limit it to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and let it go at that. The first event that we're looking at is the baptism of Jesus. As I say, this is found in four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Matthew three thirteen through 17, which we're going to read here in a moment. Parallel passage being Mark 1, verses 9 through 11. Luke 3, verses 21 through 23. And John one twenty-nine through 34. We're going to spend the bulk of our study today in Matthew 3 and in John 1. I think the material in Mark and Luke pretty well match up with what we find in, in Matthew. And we won't... Uh, Significantly refer to those passages this morning, although you're certainly welcome to and and should read those parallel passages on your own in uh, following up what we do here today. We're also, before we can even get to Matthew uh, 3.13, we'll also take a little time to look at verses 1 through 12. And then before we get to John uh, 1.29, we'll spend some time to look at verses 19 through 28. Those are the intros, those are the lead-ins to the baptism event that will give us the material we want to look at pertaining to John the Baptist, all right? So, here in Matthew chapter 3, as I say, we're looking at verse 13, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him, and we have the baptism event in verses 13 through 17, but let's, for the moment, focus in on verses uh, 1 through 12 and, and get the setting for this, which does indeed introduce John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We actually begin with point one. John the Baptist undertook a wilderness preaching ministry as the herald of the Christ. John the Baptist undertook a wilderness preaching ministry as the herald of the Christ. He did not march into Jerusalem and undertake a Jerusalem ministry, but he had a wilderness ministry. And in fact, as word of that spread, those who were interested, those that had positive volition or just even curiosity, would come from Jerusalem in the hill country of Judea and would go out to the wilderness to hear what this prophet was all about. John the Baptist undertook a wilderness preaching ministry as the herald of the Christ. And this is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The context for this uh, in those days, and uh, the context simply being in the aftermath of the death of Herod, and the establishment of the different rules of Herod's sons, that broke down the territory of Herod into four different parts. And uh, Archelaus was reigning over Judea and uh, so joseph and mary took jesus and moved back up into galilee and settled in nazareth in those days that is in the days of the of the tetrarchy we say the four parts of what used to be herod's kingdom now uh, ruled individually by these four rulers in those days and we have estimated this as being about 30 AD or possibly 28 AD in that range We really don't know how long the baptizer was working prior to verse 13 when Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. How long was that repentance ministry? How long was that warning, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? We don't know. Um, We It can indicate or speculate that it was at least a few weeks or months or possibly a couple of years, but it couldn't have been terribly long as uh, his ministry was never designed to be uh, to have any glory of itself. It was all designed to be introductory. It was all designed to introduce the Christ and then to fade from the scene. And so we have the context for this. His proclamation under main, sub-point A, his proclamation, repent. Repent. Change your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. His proclamation, Repent. We understand metanoeo, meta meaning to change, noeo meaning to think. Repent means change your thinking. For the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And we want to be very clear on the forerunner, and we will spend time, we'll go back to Malachi, we'll remind ourselves of what the forerunner was all about. We want to recognize a couple of misconceptions about John the Baptist that for whatever reason, continue to this day, and people get confused about it. Because people get in their mind the thinking that that John the Baptist was uh, some form of, uh, you know, a, a, a Billy Graham evangelist that was going here and there and, and getting people saved. All right? Now, I don't doubt for a moment that if John the Baptist encountered an unbeliever that he... didn't stop and give them the gospel and so forth, but his primary message was not evangelistic. His primary message was one of warning. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers with respect to their change of thinking that's necessary, caught up in the world system, caught up in their politics, caught up in all of their legalism and darkness, that definitely need a change of thinking because the Christ is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The primary ministry of John the Baptist is to believers, to believing Israel that they that their heart be turned back to the Lord. As they had been so overwhelmed by worldliness and overwhelmed by the things they were distracted by. Very much following the message of Malachi. The whole book of Malachi is wake up and get it in order. <laughs> See, a rebuke to the priests, a rebuke to Israel for not um, fulfilling what they should be fulfilling. So it's proclamation, repent. The vast majority of cases in the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, where repent is given as an imperative are directed towards believers. The church at Ephesus was told to repent. You've left your first love, for example. The application of repent is more often than not directed towards believers who need a change of thinking. And I think all too often uh, evangelists or uh, believers trying to give the gospel, um, when they emphasize repent too often or more often than not, they're distracting from what the real issue is in the in salvation, which is believe. <laughs> All right? Which is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So, we have the proclamation here. Repent. Change your thinking. For the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And We will go back to Malachi and see the purpose for the herald and the purpose for the forerunner because the baptizer fulfilled it in first advent, and Elijah will fulfill that in second advent as the witnesses go forth prior to the second advent of Jesus Christ. So point B, his clothing and diet were reminiscent of Elijah. Matthew 3, 4, and we relate it back to 2 Kings 1, 8. We also have the reference in Matthew 11 and verse 8. So in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's a forerunner. Isaiah spoke of it. Malachi spoke of it. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Remember, the last time we saw, we saw John the Baptist, he was being raised in the wilderness. At the end of Luke, uh, chapter 1, after the song of, uh, of Elizabeth, or the song of Mary, the song of Elizabeth, the song of, uh, Zechariah, at the end of Luke chapter 1, we have simply a comment that's made, in verse 80, and the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. All right. That's the last we've seen of John the Baptist until now. Until we get to Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying. So he, he's growing up in the wilderness. He's living in the deserts. He's definitely low-profile, <laughs> under the radar, we say. And then all of a sudden, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, he steps forward into public ministry. Never gone to school. <laughs> didn't, wasn't trained up by the Pharisees in their, in their understanding of Scripture. But taught by God Himself, taught by His parents, taught by whomever out there in the, in the deserts. And then he steps forward for public ministry. And so in Matthew 3... We see this, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of question. Well, who is this guy? And obviously the Sanhedrin wants to know, the Pharisees want to know, and they send their lackeys and their minions and try to find out, who, who, you know, who are you, who do you think you are, what are your credentials, <laughs> that kind of thing. Are you the Christ? But his clothing and his diet were reminiscent of Elijah. He's not one of the uh, privileged scholars living in Jerusalem Learning uh, at the feet of Gamaliel, wearing soft clothing, eating the the, the prime food, and all the rest. This guy's rugged. This guy's from the desert. This guy eats locusts and wild honey, and he's dressed like uh, dressed like a bandit from out there in the in the boonies. All right, and very much reminiscent of Elijah in his Old Testament ministry. The garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. You know, it's um, back to chapter 11. Another comment gets made about this. And uh, Christ actually delivered a message about the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? <clears throat> a reed shaken by the wind? You know, were you out there just seeing a novelty? Were you out there getting entertained? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. Boy, there's a lot of work we need to do on that. We'll tackle that when we get to that point in Matthew chapter 11. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He is more than a prophet because all of the other prophets in the Old Testament, their message was the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming. John the Baptist got to say the Christ is here. Here he is. And whereas all the other prophets were given miracles, uh, signs to perform that gave evidence of their calling, gave evidence of their prophetic ministry, John the Baptist had no miracles. He performed no miracles because he produced the Christ. <laughs> he didn't need the miracles as the divine evidence. He produced the Christ. And so he was a prophet and yet more than a prophet. He was indeed a prophesied one. The one about whom it is written, And then the praise in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women. I love that phrase, you know. Raise your hand if your mom was a mom. You know, if your mom was a woman, all right. Of those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. The greatest believer in human history from Adam to the present was John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's remarkable, the position we have in Christ as the bride of Christ. You know, the biggest loser in the history of the church that died the sin and the death. Take Ananias and Sapphira, for example. They're part of the bride. Positional truth places them in Christ, greater than John the Baptist. When it comes right down to it, we have these things described right here in verse 11. All right, if you want to glance back to 2 Kings chapter 1, we get the description of Elijah. Elijah we have in both 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Um, His famous uh, conflict with uh, the prophets of Baal and all of his things here with uh, Ahab and Jezebel. That comes at the end of 1 Kings. And then in 2 Kings, he hands it off to Elisha in these first couple of chapters. And it's interesting, when uh, Elijah was ministering, he was pretty much a wilderness kind of guy. Ahab kept trying to kill him. Had, uh, you know, a warrant out for his arrest and execution. And so, uh, Elijah would move around from place to place. We know that he outran chariots on occasion. We know that he had methods of transportation beyond the human capacity. And, uh, if he wanted to disappear one place and reappear another place, see, that's what the Lord would do. This is long before any Star Trek transporter beam. All right, this is God just taking a person from here and putting them there. And it's interesting. And um, in the description here, um, verse 5, When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, Well, a man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. And he said, well, what kind of man was he who came up to you to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle about, bound about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. All right. <laughs> that was enough of a description that there was only one guy who could be. All right. You know, I don't know how many other hairy guys there were in Israel at the time, but... uh But to be a hairy man and to have the leather girdle around his loins and to be dressed in such a manner was unique. That somebody dressed like that, stepping forward saying, thus says the Lord. Well, that's a clue. All right. And he knows for certain. And so the king (laughs) sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. And on they go. And this is kind of a fun story and I'll let you read it on your own but uh, these captains in their 50s and then finally the third captain got smart (laughs) and said I don't want to end up like those first two captains in their 50s and the things there so um, anyway the clothing and diet now the promise was given that Elijah would return. Remember, Elijah never died. Elijah was caught up to heaven on the fiery chariot, and he never physically died. And the promise was that Elijah would return. And so here's a guy dressed in, in these uh, camel's hair with a belt around his loins, and he's eating this, and he's a wild guy from out in the woods. And uh, the anticipation, and he's saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's anticipation that, hey, is this it? Is this really Elijah? Has Elijah returned? Is this what's going on? So we can understand some of the excitement that uh, surrounded this. Point C. John enjoyed unparalleled response to his preaching as great multitudes came out of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordan in order to be baptized. Matthew 3 verses 5 and 6. The, the response that we have indicated here in Matthew 3 is extraordinary. Unparalleled response. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Jerusalem was going out to him. He didn't go into Jerusalem and preach these things, but by word of mouth, that message was getting out, and people were going out to the Jordan to be baptized. It says, Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Again, these aren't unbelievers getting saved. These are believers who have been walking in carnality, been walking in darkness, been walking in their systems of pride and religion and legalism and all the rest, and realized they need to get their heart right before their Christ appears. So they had positive volition to the warning that the Christ was coming. Very pertinent message for today, because we have, again, a warning that Christ is coming. Behold, I come quickly. He can come today. And yet, how many believers are so caught up in worldliness, so caught up in carnality, the question gets asked, when the Son of Man appears, will he find faith upon the earth? Will there actually be positive volition believers that are ready Or is there going to be a whole collective uh uh-oh when they hear the trumpet? (laughs) You know, the trumpet sounds and then believers around the planet go, oops. Because there's not a whole lot of time to confess in that twinkling of an eye when you're transformed and caught up into the clouds. And so, you understand the parallels here. The, The imminency, Israel in the intertestamental period, when, when, when Malachi closed the scriptures and said, don't be adding to this, it's very much like the apostle John who closed the scriptures in Revelation and said, don't be adding to this, alright, and saying, the Christ is coming quickly, Jesus Christ says, behold, I come quickly. In Malachi, the, the final, I mean, just, we're in Matthew, right? Flip back a couple pages. Look how the Old Testament ends. Malachi four verses five and six behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not be so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So that's how the Old Testament ends and they're left with a, a an expectation of imminency of well any time now, any day now, Elijah's gonna come and he's gonna bring about this repentance and with a ministry of restoring hearts to the fathers to the sons and sons to the fathers, getting believers back oriented to the Word of God like they should be oriented to. And so when John the Baptist arrives on the scene and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he's he's decked out like Elijah, and we're told elsewhere that he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, we understand what's going on here. So Matthew 3, 5, and 6, the unparalleled response is quite interesting. There'll be more of that coming up too, where the people are just stunned when Jesus is teaching. They're just stunned. They say, well, we never heard any of this before. He taught with authority. And they said, you know, none of our Sadducees ever taught like this. None of the Pharisees ever taught like this. None of the scribes ever taught like this. And they were eating it up. You know, believers that are hungry for teaching, when they finally find teaching, they go, oh my goodness, I never knew this was out there before. I never knew there were churches that did this kind of thing before. Goodness, what have I been missing all this time? And they get they they, they can sink their teeth into some meat and some teaching, and they go, "Wow, you know, here's uh, the ministry of the of, of uh, the baptizer, and he's spirit filled, and he's teaching the word, and he's proclaiming it boldly." And they're willing to make that walk from Jerusalem all the way out to the Jordan to get fed. Pharisees weren't teaching them that way. The Sadducees weren't teaching them that way. You know, if you think about it. The bulk of of legalistic religions, their goal is not to really teach their people. They do much better if they can keep their people really kind of ignorant and, and say, well, just trust us. We'll tell you what to do. We'll tell you what to think. Just trust us, say. And so whether it's, you know, the Roman church and listen to the priest, he'll tell you what to do or whatever form of legalistic church. They don't really want to teach their people. Keep them ignorant. Keep them in the dark. Trust us. We'll handle it. We're the priests. You're the people. You see, the Pharisees were the same way. The legalistic Jewish religion, same way. Trust us. We're the experts. We're the scribes. We're the experts in the law. We'll tell you how to apply it. We'll tell you what to do. Just follow our guidance and you'll do fine. Now all of a sudden, here comes Bible teaching. Here comes a message. Here comes a prophet. Probably the first teaching prophet since Malachi. See, so far as we know, that we don't know of any others in between the Testaments. Uh, The other prophets we have glimpses of didn't have teaching ministries. Simeon and Anna, they were waiting in the temple. We don't know what kind of teaching ministry they had. But here's a prophet, and here's a prophet sent to Israel. He's announcing the coming of the Christ. And so we see unparalleled response. Now, this whole idea of baptism, this whole idea of baptism here, Sub point one under C, Judaism's baptism ritual of Gentile proselytes. Judaism, now Judaism in between the testaments actually developed a baptism ritual. You can't find it in the Old Testament, but it developed in between the testaments. Judaism's baptism ritual of Gentile proselytes likely followed 70 AD and bears no influence upon John's baptism. You're going to read a bunch of books, maybe, and they're going to say that John the Baptist was following a Jewish practice of, uh, of baptizing proselytes into the Jewish faith. Problem with that is we can really find no clear evidence that that procedure took place this early. Or that it took place at all prior to 70 AD. And it bears no influence upon John's baptisms. The John's baptism. All too often, these um, scholars that are trying to find explanations for things and say, well, you know, the origins of this practice came, they borrowed it from such and such a source. Now stop and wait a minute. <laughs> My Bible says they were directed by God in the things they did, in the things they spoke of, in the things they wrote. See? Directed by God in their rituals, in their practices, in their messages, in their writings. So if you come across these scholars that are trying to find earthly explanations and sources for traditions or practices or different things, just better put a big old grain of salt in there. In fact, put ten grains of salt in there and and take it that way and say, you know, chances are those are the same scholars that think that's how the Bible was written. (laughs) That we just accumulated some oral traditions and put them together in a written form, and they would dispute that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Secondly, subpoint 2, the Qumran records, these are the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran records of the Essenes, they do precede John's activity, but their rites bear little resemblance to John's mission. The Qumran records of the Essenes do precede John's activity, but their rites bear little resemblance to John's mission. The Essenes were a sect of Jews, They did have a water ritual to initiate them into their community. But their rites bear little resemblance to John's mission. They uh, didn't really have much of an outreach to the Jews at large. Their uh, whole idea was just going out to the boonies and being separate, being little hermits, being monks, being separate, being holy, and being... You know different than the than the uh, the Jews back there in Jerusalem, those that were caught up in worldliness, they had no burden to actually go and minister to those worldly Jews, but if you know someone got tired of the worldliness and wanted to come out and join them, well okay, we got some rituals and rites, and you can come through and become a part of us, so to speak. John wasn't inviting people to come to himself; he was warning them. That the Christ was coming and they had to get their heart right. So, you may again read all these scholars and those who will try to tell you that John the Baptist was an Essene. Can't prove that, can't know that. In fact, I think the evidence is against that. Some that tell you, well, Jesus was an Essene. Jesus was, much of his ministry was similar to the Essene's message. Wrong answer there too. You're not getting that in scripture. What we have here is God fulfilling what he promised in Isaiah and Malachi. And John the Baptist is coming to fulfill that. He's coming as a herald. He's coming to announce the Christ. That's what we have here. Now, point two. When the religious political leaders came to participate in the baptism ritual, John confronted them like Elijah before the prophets of Baal. When the religious political leaders came to participate in the baptism ritual, John confronted them like Elijah before the prophets of Baal. He became immediately confrontational. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. Remember, John the Baptist is here in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah. Elijah's conflict was with the prophets of Baal. Here's John's conflict. It's with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He calls them a brood of vipers. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Now keep in mind, who is the serpent? Who are his offspring? What is John calling these guys here? Unbelievers. Children of the devil. Christ himself will use that phrase when he says you're of your father the devil, John 8:44. John the Baptist says you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They are not the recipients of this warning. The recipients of this warning are born-again believers looking for their coming Christ. Remember, in the Old Testament, a person got saved by placing their faith in the Christ who would come. The coming one, the one that would redeem them from their sins. We, of course, get saved looking back with hindsight, placing our faith in the Christ who did come and what he did on our behalf. But in the Old Testament, they were looking forward by faith, knowing that a Redeemer was coming to redeem them that the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. And so for 4,000 years, they were looking forward for the coming seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head and deliver them from from their sin. And so these are the ones that are being warned, and they're being warned to flee from wrath, the great and terrible day of the Lord. See, when, when the baptizer comes and he's warning them, this is very much in keeping with Isaiah Ezekiel, Zechariah, these Old Testament prophets that were saying, you know, the wrath of the Lord is coming. You've got to flee. Like Matthew 24 and 25, looking forward to second advent, great tribulation. You better flee. You better hope it's not in the winter or on the Sabbath. You better hope you're not pregnant. That will slow you down. <laughs> All right. You want to flee. You want to run and you want to run fast. And so when the baptizer here says, Who warned you to flee? It's obvious that uh, this message is not for them. This is a message for believers to wake up and orient themselves to the dispensational program and recognize what's about to happen. Get right with the Lord. Get ready for His appearance. And flee from the wrath. Flee from the judgment. In uh, the tribulational sense, it's flee for refuge because he will he will provide that refuge. As a matter of fact, Mount of Olives is going to split north and south. There'll be a brand new valley formed, a way of escape, and they're going to run right through it and be delivered. But only if they're ready to flee. If they decide, oh, I'm going to go grab my cloak first, <laughs> they won't make it. All right. So when the religious political leaders came, we have the confrontation. The confrontation. The message wasn't for them. He tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you truly are born again believers in Jesus Christ, then the fruit should bear that out. By the deeds ye shall know them. If you are in fact saved, we should see evidence of that. By virtue of the fact that you're not bearing that fruit, you've not repented, you've not right with the Lord. So do not suppose that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. Don't get all caught up just because you're racially Jewish. That doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean you're saved. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Nowadays we say, you know, do not suppose you can say for yourself, you know, I go to a Bible church. I go to a Catholic church. See, I go to a Baptist church. How often do I talk to people and say, and I ask them, I say, are you, uh, are you saved? Are you born again believer in Jesus Christ? Say, are you a Christian? And they say, "Well, I'm Catholic. I can't tell you how many times I've. You probably gotten the same answer too. You say, are you a believer? Are you saved? Well, I'm Catholic. <laughs> Not what I asked. That doesn't mean anything. Are you saved? Have you placed your faith in Christ? But see, to the practicing Catholic, that does mean something. That's all that they need. Well, I'm Catholic, so I'm okay. I'm in the right church. See." Have you placed your faith in Christ? Don't Just like he said, don't suppose you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. You know, Don't suppose you can say to yourself, well, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm a Bible church person. God's not impressed with that. <laughs> I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment is pending. See, before the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, every unbeliever is going to be cast into the fire. Only believers will enter into the, into the millennial kingdom. Then verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. The whole message of John the Baptist is to introduce he who is coming after me. His whole role is to introduce the Christ. He has one work assignment, and that is to step forward and introduce the Christ, and then his work assignment is done. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There it is again, second advent, when the millennial kingdom begins. Believers are gathered in, unbelievers, to the fire. To the fire. Okay. I'm going to stop just in case there's questions here. I know I'm not stopping, stopping, but I'm going to stop for the moment to take questions if in fact there's confusion here because much of what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes is focused on the millennium. It's focused on Second Advent. Okay. And yet, you and I might get confused and say, but, 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 what about First Advent? What about the cross? What about the church age? Okay. Don't use your perspective now, 2,000 years later, to confuse what they were looking at back then. They didn't know about First Advent and Second Advent. They didn't know about the church age in between. They were looking for the coming Christ. They were looking at a kingdom. They were looking at judgment. They were looking at fire. They were looking at all of these things that we know to be still future Second Advent. That's what they were looking at. That's what they were anticipating. And in fact, that's the ministry of the baptizer. And he himself started to have some doubts and struggles with his faith. Because he wasn't seeing what he thought he'd be seeing. When he was thrown in prison and about to lose his head, and he sends some messengers and says, uh, you know, uh, did, did, I, did I mess up? <laughs> did I introduce the wrong guy? Am I supposed to be looking for somebody else? You know, he only had one work assignment. He thought he was done with it. And he wasn't seeing the kingdom brought in. So, let's not get confused. we have any questions on this? All right, surely. No, the believers that are fleeing are believers that are anticipating tribulation. They're going to flee tribulation. Okay, Okay, what is yet future is the great tribulation of Israel. And Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by enemies. And they're going to be commanded to flee. We'll have that coming up in a long time from now, at the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ, right before the the cross, when he gives them the Mount Olivet discourse. And he tells them, you know, this day is coming, and you're going to need to flee. You're going to need to flee because Jerusalem is going to be surrounded. All of Israel, the world will gather for war against Israel and you better flee. Get out of Jerusalem. See, and that's the warning. That's, we understand that to be tribulational, that believing Jews in the tribulation will flee. And uh, uh, a route will be given for them in order to do so, and Christ will return and destroy the enemies. But it, we're at a point here in the church where we can look forward to the tribulation and say, okay, that's still coming up. The tribulation's coming up. The millennium's coming up. Because okay? we're in a position to see that. And, and there's a flee message there, right? In the tribulation, there's a message there that says flee. What I'm trying to illustrate this morning is that's the same flee message that the Baptist is giving here. Fleeing from the wrath to come. Because they don't know about the church. They don't know about, well, they do know about the tribulation because they know it's the time of Jacob's trouble. They know it's Daniel's 70th week and so forth. And and so when he's telling them flee. He's giving them that message, that tribulational message, that second advent message. When he says, flee from the wrath to come. And, but that's because they, it has not yet been revealed to them that the Christ is coming actually in two advents. First advent, second advent. The prophets who prophesied of old made careful search and inquiry, seeking to determine what person or time within them, the spirit of Christ within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So just as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of these, Zechariah, all of these prophets spoke of judgment, wrath, uh, the coming of Christ, for the most part, they were looking at second advent. Only in small places did they predict first advent. That is, the suffering Messiah. Okay? Verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is uh, sheep and goat judgment, for example, of Gentile nations, where believers are entered into the kingdom and unbelievers are thrown into hell. Or this is the wilderness judgment of Israel, Ezekiel chapter 20, where believing Jews can enter into the kingdom, unbelievers are thrown into hell. No. No, no, this is not Judgment Seat of Christ, Wood, Hay, and Stubble. No, these are unbelievers being removed from the planet so that the millennium can begin with 100% believers. Just uh, so you can find it, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I turn here a lot. I refer to it a lot. It's easy to find because it's the first chapter of a book. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So they weren't sloppy. They made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Sufferings of Christ, first advent. Glories to follow, second advent. And the prophets were confused. You know, you can imagine Isaiah. And he, he gives this message about a lamb going as silent to its uh, slaughter and uh, crushed for our iniquities and becoming our substitute. And he, he prophesies this suffering Messiah. And that didn't look very pleasant. <laughs> you think, oh my, that's a, that's a terrible thing the, the Savior has to go through on our behalf. But then he also... Speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, and the lion will lay down with the lamb, and a little child shall leave him, and all the glories to follow. And Isaiah scratching his head saying, How's this gonna work? Okay? Jeremiah, suffering Messiah, glorious to follow. How's that gonna work? Daniel, same way. Daniel had things he was terrified of, scared him to death. How is this all gonna work? So the prophets who prophesied of old Of the grace that would come to you, make careful searches and inquiries. They wanted to know this. Now, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, they were told, don't worry about it. There's people coming after you that will have all this made clear to them. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Old Testament prophets were told, don't worry about it. There's a group of people coming up. And the Holy Spirit is going to teach all these things to them. It's going to be unfolded for them. It's mystery doctrine. You can't know it. It's sealed up. It's not for you. And uh, there were times, we even have it recorded in Daniel 12 and elsewhere, where the Lord says, Daniel, slow down. Seal these things up. It's not for you. They'll be understood later. They weren't even told about the church. That was a mystery doctrine. It was totally kept hidden. Kept hidden from the human prophets, but also, most especially, hidden from the angels. See, God didn't want, want to tip off the fallen angels, everything that's going to go on. So the elect angels were kept in the dark. Fallen angels kept in the dark. Mystery doctrine of the church kept hidden away. Then after the crucifixion of the Christ, now the mystery can be unfolded. Now we're in between first advent and second advent. Let's lay all these things out there. Let's let the church know what's going on. And let's let those fallen angels know how foolish they were. If they would have understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the the Christ. Say the ruler. It's a wisdom which the rulers of this age had not understood. For if they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they had no idea. So, let's, um, when, when, when we're dealing with John the Baptist and we're dealing with the expectations of the Jewish people when the Christ does come, when the Spirit does descend, when they hear the voice out of heaven, what are they expecting? Most of them are expecting Second Advent. Most of them are expecting that, okay, now we're going we're gonna to whoop up on the Romans Now we're going to exalt the throne of David. We're going to make him king because he can feed everybody and and heal everybody and all this stuff is real great. And we're going to have a king on earth and we're going to rule these Gentiles. See? That's what they're looking forward to. Have no perspective on the cross. No perspective of the first advent ministry of Jesus Christ. All right. Point three. John the Baptist understood that his ministry was temporary. And the one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. John the Baptist understood that his ministry was temporary. And the one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. Malachi 3, verses 2 and 3. Joel 2, verses 28 and 29. Ultimately speaking, the sending forth of the Holy Spirit is second advent in its fulfillment. We have something similar to that right now in the church. But the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit that John was speaking of, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied of, is, uh, is Israel's promise in its second advent in fulfillment. Not the church. Let me just give you these passages. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. John the Baptist understood that his ministry was temporary. We have it over in John 3, for example, when he says, He must increase and I must decrease. One of the greatest statements of humility you you can find. And John the Baptist understood that. He wasn't the issue. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. I baptize you with water for repentance. John's baptism was unique for that period of time. We do not practice that baptism. The water baptism we have in the church has nothing to do with John the Baptist's baptism. We're not uh, Israel being prepared for their coming king. We're not confessing sins and repenting things publicly in order to uh, welcome our coming Messiah. Church-age baptism has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with identifying with death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the issues with church-age baptism. He who is coming after me is mightier than I. So Baptists understood His ministry was temporary. There's a great one coming. The Christ is coming, and He's going to perform a greater baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Obviously, Israel, the believing Israel, will... Receive the Holy Spirit and be ushered into the millennial kingdom. Unbelievers will receive the fire <laughs> as they're cast into hell. All right. Sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25, judgment of Israel from Ezekiel chapter 20. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. See, until this point of time, we can't sort him out. God will sort him out when he begins. His kingdom here on earth. Malachi 3. Back to Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Israel needs the great tribulation. You realize that? Israel needs the great tribulation apart from this kind of judgment apart from this kind of wrath to humble them to spark the repentance there there will be no levites sons of zadok prepared to step into their priesthood once the millennial kingdom is is launched forth it's going to take that kind of fire that kind of judgment to humble them To prepare them. It's going to take the ministry of the the messenger to humble them. Israel today needs that kind of judgment. To prepare them for the coming Christ. Likewise, the prophet Joel and his prophecy of the coming spirit. Joel chapter 2. Joel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Knowing that this is during the period of judgment, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Blow it in the chapter two begins. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Judgment, gloom, flee. All right. And in that context, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse uh, 28, it will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. That's second Advent. That can only happen after the unbelievers are removed. He's not going to pour out His Holy Spirit on unbelievers. But after all the unbelievers are removed, and now we have only believers on the planet, here comes the Holy Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Israel will be blessed with prophetic ministry. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female bond slaves. You might have servants there. There will be slavery in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Alright, so there is promise. There is encouragement. But it comes after the warning. In fact, in Joel 2, he even goes back to the warning even goes back and reminds them that, this is, um, that there is this need to flee. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered from Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. There will be those who escape, as the Lord has said." All right, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. He'll make that provision. He will make provision. It'll seem like there's none. It'll seem like Antichrist has all the armies of the world assembled and they're all marching on Jerusalem and they're making their last stand and there's going to be no escape, no way to flee, no way to, to escape, and yet the Lord provides for that. What a exciting event that's going to be. Part of the overall campaign of Armageddon. All right, well... Next week, actually, no class next week. We'll come back in two weeks. Next week, we're having a conference. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. All right? So, um, we'll go ahead and give you a, a morning off from Wednesday morning. So, you're not trying to come in here on Tuesday night and have a night of, of teaching here and then try to turn right, right back around and come back Wednesday morning. So, you got the morning off Wednesday morning. But Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, three-day conference. George Meisinger, we hear from Schaefer Theological Seminary, pastor of uh, Grace I think it's called Grace Bible Church in uh, Orange, California. He will be here to give us a three-night conference. So uh, we will be enjoying that and not having a Wednesday morning class next week. We will come back the following Wednesday, though, Lord willing, and resume this study on baptism. And again, I'm not trying to confuse everybody, but trying to trying to set the table properly so that when, when the baptizer arises, there's all this excitement. And the Pharisees run out there and say, Who are you? Are you the are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And they got all these confusions about who he might be. And then even more when he says, Nope, I'm not the Christ. And then here comes the Christ. Again, more excitement. Is this now time for the kingdom? Let's make him king. And all of what they were anticipating certainly wasn't the cross in most cases. They were looking for the politics. They were looking for the, the temporal life victory over Rome. So uh, we we really do need to have the understanding of what the expectations were, what the what the, the the sense of imminency was all about, to really I think get a handle on why it was that Judas got so disillusioned, what it was that Simon the Zealot was fighting for. You know he was a terrorist, you know uh, okay a, a freedom fighter. All right, the, the 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 Zealot party, they were terrorists against the Roman Empire. So you know the Lord had a terrorist as one of his disciples, and um Maybe two, if uh, you know Judas, if the if uh, Iscariot in that village was likewise in that uh, in that mold. Anyway, so that's all coming up. All of this is to say, if uh, if things do get confusing, we will slow down from time to time and try to put things in perspective. Like, why is it that we're talking about John the Baptist and he's he's giving them uh, tribulational second advent warnings? Okay, that might be confusing, but if we can spell it out, maybe we can we can sort it out. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you that, uh, that the teaching of your word doesn't depend on how smart we are to figure it out, Father. It's just simply a matter of learning by faith and having the Holy Spirit guide us in the truth. And, and we are so uh, thankful that you've, by grace, made these things available for us. We thank you, Father. We do live in a very unique period of time where we can look back to First Advent, look forward to Second Advent, Father. This is the the one unique age of your dispensational plan that is blessed to be able to look in two directions and see the two advents of our savior father i pray that you would take hold of this message implant it within the soul let it dwell richly there father let it spring forth and bear fruit 30 60 100 fold as much as you desire father and and bring to remembrance the things that need to be remembered and make clear the things that need to be made clear and then for all the rest just let us uh let it simmer let it boil let it uh let us uh, stew on it by faith and chew on these things and When we need to understand them, Father, make them clear. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.